Okay, if it's not immediately obvious, we take God's word seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously, okay? <laughs> we love to laugh at ourselves and with each other. And if you don't know this, we love kids, we love families. We've got over 400 kids next door every weekend. And it's kids ministry, it's not childcare. It's lots of gospel and lots of goldfish. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we love it. Okay, now, now, if you ever walk in that kid's building, and some of you have never been in that kid's building because you don't have kids, and that's fine. But if you walked into that kid's building, what you'd see on the wall is, it says, meet Jesus and make friends. And I love that because what would you want with our kids, right? What, what, what could be better than all of the kids in our church going, ah, oh, man, when I was in kids' ministry, I met Jesus, I became a Christian, I made some of my best friends, I grew up with them, and there was nothing better than being a part of this local church. It's like, amen. But I want to add one more thing. If I could sneak in there at night, and if I could take a Sharpie, and if I could just write one more thing on meet Jesus, make friends, I would say, and have a ton of fun while you're doing it. That's what we want to have them do. That's why we're doing Kids Week, guys. Let me tell you about Kids Week. Can I talk to mom and dad for just a second? Where's mom and dad? Okay, they're all over here. Mom. Dad, I want to talk to you about Kids Week. Why would we do this, okay? It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of work. we got to partner with different organizations. Our staff's there every night. Why are we doing this? Because, I mean this, because we want to resource you. We know we can't replace you. We, Mom and Dad, we don't want to replace you. We can't. You're the, you're the primary disciplers of your kids, but you're not the sole disciplers of your kids. And so we want to come alongside you, and here's why we're telling you. I'm telling you two months in advance. Well, I mean, we do, seriously, we're doing that. And why do we move it to the beginning of August? It's like, okay, because we think for the most part, summer vacations have ended and school has not yet started. And here's why this is important, because we want kids to taste mission and adventure as a part of the Christian life from an early age. I don't know whose fault it is. Mom and dad, it might be your fault. I, I, it, might be, it might be just middle school ministries and high school ministries. And I, I don't know what, what happened, but for a lot of kids who grew up in Christian homes, they think Christianity is about what they don't do. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang with those who do. Okay, that's what they think. <laughs> they think that it's about what I can't watch and where I can't go and what I can't do. And we want to flip the script and say, actually, it's about what we get to do. This week, Kids Week's about serving the city as families in Jesus' name. We're going to spend four nights serving, one night celebrating. If you can't make all of it, could you make some of it? Let's take a moment. Let's pray for the kids and the families. It's hard. It's always been hard to be a parent, but it's very hard to be a parent in the 21st century with all the pressures and pains and problems. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our kids. We just, we, it's such a joy to have hundreds of kids next door. We thank you for all of the parents. We thank you for all the volunteers who serve in kids' ministry. Uh, we, we thank you for Johnson and his team that tirelessly organize leaders and volunteers and curriculum and food and drink and fun and exercises for them to do and worship songs for to really not do childcare but to do ministry next door to our kids. I pray that this week would be a blessing to families in our church and a blessing to our city and, and maybe even especially a blessing to parents who are trying to say, I need, I need some other parents. They'll meet them at Kids Week. I, I, want, I want to meet my kids' friends. They'll meet them at Kids Week, Lord. I want to I do more together. I don't want to just go on vacation together and watch TV together. I want to do something else. I pray that this could be a blessing to them as well. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it's been said that, like, if you went and you talked to a fish, okay, and it's a metaphor because I know fish don't talk, okay, but if you went and you could talk to a fish and you said to the fish, hey, what's water? The fish would be like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? Because why would the fish know? What, the fish doesn't know what's water, what is water, because he or she has been in water all their life. And so, what water is to a fish, culture is to a human. And so what I want to do just for a moment is I want to talk about the two main values of our culture because they're invisible to us. But if you'll type to Ephesians 4, Paul confronts the two values of our culture. 
And there's many values. I'm just trying to pick up the two I think are the biggest. All right, you want to know the number one value I think in our con culture? Consumerism. Consumerism says the more I have in my hands, the happier I'll be in my heart. And we live in the age of Amazon, and what you can do is you can have anything you want at your door in two days if you have Prime. And let's just admit it, we all have Prime, okay? All of us. In fact, when we order something, sometimes it'll say, if you order in the next seven minutes and 12 seconds, you can have this tomorrow. You're like, yeah, I don't want to wait two days, right? <laughs> How about all, I mean, I, I can't even name them all. Netflix, Paramount, Peacock, HBO Max, it just became Max, Amazon Prime Video. It's like, have you ever had someone just tell you, you got to watch this show, and then you click on it, you're like, there's seven seasons. <laughs> it's all about consuming. I told you before, I spent 10 years on a college campus, and when I think of the, and I love college students, and I, and I believe in the next generation, but when I think of a young college male, I normally think of just this picture of somebody with their headphones on, eating Doritos while watching something on their phone. It's like, gross. <laughs> Here's why, because your life is not meant to be about consuming, primarily. This is from the garden. It's to be about contributing, cultivating, and creating. Consuming leaves you with temporary satisfaction, Contributing, cultivating, and creating is what brings meaning, fulfillment, and purpose to your life. First value that Paul's going to confront today is consumerism, because no church can exist where there are more consumers than contributors, more takers than givers. The second value is individualism. And you go, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, that's actually one of the great discoveries of the Western civilization. It's like the individual as like the locus of responsibility, and we need your vote, and you know, you need to do what you need to do, and, and we think that's great, but what, we ha what happened for most of us is our lives have collapsed into a small package, which is ourselves. And they say that the number one way that people think about themselves, especially if they're like under 40, is expressive individualism, which is, uh, you know, can I take the Enneagram? Can I kind of just figure out who I am? And then can I just express that in the way I color my hair or filter my Instagram post? And my whole life is try about trying to figure out who I am and then letting everybody else know that with the clothes I wear and the car I drive and the neighborhood I live in. And Paul's gonna say, we have to, if we're going to be a strong church, and that's what Paul wants us to be, a strong unified church, he says, we have to move from consuming to contributing and from me to we. Do you know they say it takes 10 years for the average married couple to move from me to we? You've gotta be married a decade on average before you start thinking more about we and less about me. Well, Paul's gonna help us today, okay? Here's what Paul's gonna say. I'm gonna give you the whole sermon and the whole text in a sentence, and then we're just gonna spend the rest of the time walking through it. Here's what Paul's gonna say. If we're gonna get along, and that's slang for just be unified. If we're gonna get along, we need to be godly, we need to be gifted, and we need to grow up. That's the whole message. And I'll show you this from the text, but if we're gonna get along and be unified, we need to be godly, we need to be gifted, and you'll understand more what that means as we go through the text, and we need to grow up. I'll show you this, here, go, go with me to verse one. Here's what Paul says, here's Paul. He says, look, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Second time Paul tells us he's in prison. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I to which you have been called. Now, I want to stop for a second because this is really helpful, especially for parents, but for anybody, for leaders, for bosses, for friends. This is good. I want us to see that Paul's making a massive transition. In fact, if you feel comfortable in your Bible, you can even write a line. Like, this is the boundary marker in the book of Ephesians where everything changes, okay? So for three chapters, Paul just told you who. 
That's it. There's no, I told you this week one, you don't remember, it's okay. But, it, it, but the first three chapters, there's not one command. It's all about who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ and what Christ has done for us. And then in chapter four, we move into this language of walking, okay? But here's what I want us to notice. This is such a key. Some of you, this is all you need. And you're like, Kyle, I got it. I'm going to go home. This is it, okay? This is what you need. Paul spends three chapters encouraging people and praying for them before he challenges them or asks them to do anything. How could that transform your marriage? How could that transform your parenting? I mean, think about a dad who has a good relationship with his daughter. I mean, it's lots of relationship. And by the way, the more rules in a house, usually the less relationship. The more laws in a house, usually the less love. But imagine a dad, and he has a really great relationship with his daughter, and he's had a great relationship with his daughter for 15 years. And he prays with her and prays for her and tells her, hey, I've been praying for you. Maybe the thing he says, I've been praying for you, and we've been, mom and I have been praying for you for 15 years, is your spouse. So when she brings home a guy that dad doesn't think is that great, she's probably going to be a lot more likely to listen. Haven't I, don't, don't you know I have the best in mind for you? Don't you know I love you? Haven't we prayed together and mom and I have been praying for 15 years for your spouse? Would you listen to me? The answer is probably yes. I, I had a guy in my life, in my last church, and he used to do that to me. He used to walk up to me and say, I'm praying for your marriage. I'm like, oh, what are you praying? <laughs> he'd walk up to me, seriously, he'd walk up to me, I'm praying for your college ministry. And then sometimes he'd say this, and I've got a thought or two I want to tell you about it. And I was like, man, I know this guy loves me. I really believe he was praying for me. Yeah, what do you, I mean, what, while you were praying, what did you feel? Too many of us lead with challenge. We lead with law, we lead with rules, and we don't lean into relationship in prayer. Paul spends two chapters praying and a total of almost three chapters encouraging before he tells them what to do. This is the key transition from wealth to walk, okay? So if you want, if you, some of you like outlines for the, for the book of Ephesians, the best outline, I think, is wealth, walk, warfare. Uh, the first three chapters are our wealth in Christ. I won't revisit all that. He's transitioning now from wealth to walk, and here's why this is important. Most Christians in America grew up in a church where this was the message they heard. Maybe it wasn't necessarily the message the pastor meant to send, or the youth group meant to send, or the college guy meant to send. But, but this is the message that most people here in church God's good, you're bad, try harder. See you next week. Uh, God's good, but you're bad. Try harder, see you next week. Well, that's not the message of the gospel. What we're finding out here is that because of our wealth in Christ, because of all that Christ did for us, we're to walk. That's just the word for live a certain way. And the first thing Paul's gonna do, this week's all on unity, next week's all on purity. Paul is gonna talk about getting along. Paul is going to talk about being unified. Here, I'll show you. Let's go to the first three verses here. You got to see this for yourself. Okay, here's, let's go back to verse one. We'll see it all. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. So again, we're moving from wealth to walking. That word's going to come up again and again and again in the next couple chapters. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we don't work to earn God's favor. We don't walk in, in, in light to earn God's favor. We walk because we already have God's favor. We live not for God's approval, but out of God's already approving us. Look at this. Here, here's where it's not going to be that exciting for you guys and for me. He tells us what we need to do. How are you doing with these guys? Number two, verse, or verse two. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then here's the purpose. Here's where we're going to kind of focus. Eager. Eager. Are you excited about this? Do you want to do this? Look at this. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I want us to stop for a second. So Paul writes to the early church, and we believe that the church at its birth is the church at its best. 
So this is the early church. We always want to write, we want to return to the book of Acts and we want to be like the first Christians and we want to be like the pure church of early on. Do you see that in verse three, Paul says, hey guys, listen, hold on, first church. I, I want you guys to be unified. You know what this means? They weren't unified. Do you know, this is hard to believe, I know, that Christians used to fight. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Churches used to have factions and friction. See, here's what you need to do. The first thing, if we're going to have unity, okay, if we're going to get along, um, if we're going to have peace, which the Bible talks about, we have to have the right expectations for our lives. And here's the first right expectation. By the way, part of the way you grow as a leader and you mature as a person is there's, like after you have your basic skills, you have to like, have two things, perspective and expectation. It's like, man, if you can send your kids off to college and give them perspective and expectation, they're going to be so far ahead of whoever's in second place. So part of what I'm trying to give you is you, you need the right expectation for your life. And here's the right expectation. Um, Unfortunately, fighting and friction and faction and disunity and division is normal. It's sinful, it's wrong, it needs to be repented of, we need to grow, but it's normal. And this is really important because every once in a while, you know, th this happens, right? You're, you're, this probably happened to most of us. You get married and then all of a sudden you start having all these fights. And you're like, then everyone thinks I married the wrong person. And then they go to counseling or they talk to a friend or they talk to an older couple and the older couple says, hey, let me just tell you something, just real quick. What you're experiencing is normal. And everyone just goes, oh, thank God, <laughs> right? Or you have, you have your kids and you, know, you love your kids, but they get on your nerves and you feel bad that you don't like your own kids sometimes. And then every mom and dad goes, don't tell anyone, but it's normal. <laughs> we need to have the right expectations for our life. He says, I want you to keep unity. Now, here's what I see. The sad thing about churches is they're, they're often divided. How many churches do we know like this? Okay, I'm not thinking of any one church. How many churches, it's the committee on committees versus the committee on the finance. Well, I mean, who, I mean, right? How many churches, the elder team can't get together. The board doesn't like itself. Uh, you know, the deacons are fighting with the pastoral staff. I mean, I hate to tell you, because I don't know a lot of things, but I know the church world pretty well. That's pretty normal. I, I had a, my favorite professor in seminary was my counseling professor. And uh, he was really a great guy and taught me so many things. And every, almost every weekend, he, he, his kids were empty nesters and everything. So almost every weekend he would come to us and he'd say, hey guys, listen, we'd have class on Thursday. <coughs> and he'd be like, hey guys, listen. Um, it was kind of like an adventure. He's like, guys, this week, I can't tell you what church it is. This week I'm flying to New Jersey to meet with an elder team to help them. He works for a peacemaking ministry that helped churches. He'd be like, all right, guys, hey, just so you know, this week I'll be heading to Nebraska. There's a small church, and there's like five powerful families that are at each other's throat in the church. It's like, well, unfortunately, that's very normal too. So he and his team would fly out to try to make peace. But let's be honest, so many families. It's, it's easy to talk about the church, right? But how about you? Like how many families are divided and experiencing disunity? Here's the best definition for division. We'll break the word apart. Division. What is division? <coughs> two visions. A home is divided that has two visions for how to raise the kids. Two visions for how they should be educated. This is very common. Two visions for how they should be disciplined. Two visions for how the finances should work. Two visions, this is very common because we no longer, which is, which is fine, we no longer have traditional roles. Two visions for what wife does and two visions for what husband does. And then the thing that couples fight about the most, two visions for how to use their time off. What is unity? Well, unity is not uniformity, right? 
You've probably heard this before, but it's worth saying one more time before we see how we get unity. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity happens in high control environments. Not all uniformity is bad. The military has to have uniformity. It's like, all right, everybody, same haircut. Everybody, same outfit. When you start out, everybody, same status. Everybody, exact same schedule. Everybody, exact same meals, right? But you know where else you find uh, uniformity? Private school? <laughs> Maybe, yes. Prison. You know, it's like, okay, everybody wear the same clothes. Everybody eat the same meal. You know where else you find uniformity? Cults. Now, the bad thing about a cult is you don't know you're in it until it's too late, okay? <laughs> you're drinking the Kool-Aid. You're like, this isn't what I thought. Um, <coughs> a, cult, a cult, in a cult, everybody believes the same thing about everything. You, you'll, you'll have versions of churches sometimes that are cult-like in how they feel. They're usually very small, and everybody's acting exactly like the senior pastor. And they all talk the exact same way, and they believe everything about, not the main things, but everything about every secondary and tertiary issue. So how do we stay unified? By the way, did you notice that it says maintain unity? We don't make unity. God did that at the cross. We're to maintain it. It's actually actual in the spiritual world, and it should be aspirational for us. There's an objective nature to unity, but there's a subjective experience that we're often not experiencing. Okay, I need to show you this. This is the main thing. You can see it right in verse two. Look here. In verse two, we're told how to have unity. It says this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, so this is the part you're not gonna like. Um, the way to have unity is you need to be more godly. Okay? Now, I know what you're thinking. Like, you know. I, and this is what I'm thinking. I, what I, I would love to get up here. And this is if some of you know me better than others. Like, my temperament and my personality is to be unbelievably, like, practical and want to be just, like, helpful and want to give tools and steps. And that's just my personality. And so what I want to do, but I can't from this text, is I want to get up here and go, guys, I got it. I found it. It's in the Bible. I got to give you the three hacks to being unified. Like, you know, let me, I found it, guys. There's these four steps that if in every marriage you would do them, you would, your marriage would move from a four to an eight. Paul doesn't tell us what we need to do. He tells us who we need to be. And there's a real reason why this, and you'll see this anywhere now that, that I tell you this. Um, bad systems will work with godly people. Okay systems will work with godly people. So, okay, just follow the story for just a second here. But I, I've got a mentor friend, and what he does, he's like Yoda. He's like in his 70s. And, um, and, and what he does right now is he travels around and he helps churches do succession, Okay. And this is very applicable to many of you in business too because basically the baby boomers are retiring and so there's a mass redistribution of wealth and leadership and property and money, and okay? So uh, what he's doing, this is really applicable to what we're talking about here. He, he will fly around. He, he's, he already did his succession plan. And so he helps other pastors. And what he told me, this is fascinating. He goes, Kyle, I did like 12 or 14 of these now. He said, every person has a different succession plan and I found out which succession plans work. It's the one that have two godly people involved in it. Because there's always an older senior pastor moving out and a younger senior pastor coming in. And people go, well, what, what, how does it have to work? Do they have to overlap? Should the senior pastor leave because he can't be there anymore because the new guy needs to be here? Or should the senior pastor stay and support? Should the senior pastor stay and just be quiet and be out of the way? It's like, it doesn't matter if they're both godly. And there is no system that works with ungodly people. So I want to free you up because some of you are trying to, you're trying to figure out how to do your family. It's like, be godly. You're like, well, do we do the devotionals and then do we do the dinner and then do we do something in the morning and then how do we spend our weekend? It's like, look, I'm all about systems and structures and all that, okay? I'm telling you it's not as important as being godly. 
Okay, so here's the four things, guys. And what he's telling us is, I'm going to give them to you right now. What he's telling us is that the reason your marriage, and this is not what you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. The reason your marriage is having division is because you're not godly. And I know you'd like to think it's your spouse, and maybe she's not godly either, okay? But let's let her worry about that. <laughs> or let him worry about that, right? Because really, at the end of the day, well, the reason, and this is actually a very interesting thing, the reason that we want to blame other people, and this is just helpful to know, is because if I can blame my wife, then she needs to change. It's like, well, that's, what a relief. <laughs> I don't need to change. But if, if I'm the one that's the problem, then I'm the one that needs to change. So let me give you the four. First, humility. You know I was going to talk about it. This is actually the word lowly. This is an interesting word because in, back in that culture, the, that we know of, Paul is the first person to use this word positively. The Greeks don't use the, I mean, come on. The average Greek guy or gal, they don't think being lowly is a good attribute. They used it for the weak and for the naive. But let's be honest, why, are, why is there so much conflict? It's normally because of pride, and it's normally because somebody wants to be right. I recently heard a definition of pride that I thought, well, that's really interesting. Someone said a prideful person is someone who, is yet, who has not met God yet. That if you stand and you stare at the cross and you see what your sin did to your Savior and you realize the ground is level at the cross, it humbles you. Here's what humble people do. Humble people can handle not getting their way all the time. It's been said that you don't really get to know somebody until you tell them no. Have you ever done that? You have like a friendship or someone works for you or who knows. And you tell someone no and it's like, well, it's almost like, there you are. I never, I never met you before. I met a persona of, of what you're like when everything's going well, but as soon as you didn't get your way and I told you no, there you are. And, and so what, what happens is you want to, uh, the question you're going to have to ask in relationships is, do I want to be right or do I want to be forgiven? Do I want to be right or do I want to seek to understand and, and, and be understood? Do, do I want to be right or do I want to try to find a third way? And let's be honest, sometimes we just want to be right. Secondly is gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is also talked about as meekness. It's strength under control. And gentleness tells us to avoid two things that ruin relationships. The first is being domineering, and the second is being nice. Because gentleness, I'll explain this in a minute, is not being nice. Gentleness is all about its strength. I said this already, but its strength under control. And it's the ability, here, here's what gentleness is. Gentleness is often, I know, timing, tone, and tact. I, I know that when I'm going to talk to somebody, right, how, how many of us, we all know, every husband knows there's certain times that are better to talk to his wife about something than others. It's like, okay, I just came home, and the kids are crazy, and this might not be the right time to ask this question. We know that timing's important. Tone is important. Here's what I mean by tone. You have to get to the place, and people can, I don't know how this works. I don't know if it's spiritual, if it's psychological. Unless people are naive, they can tell if you have an agenda. So you have to, you really have to clear, I mean, I've had, I'm not saying I've had to confront any more people than you've had to confront, but I've had to confront and challenge a lot of people in my life, and I, I, don't, I don't like doing it. I don't have the natural personality to do it. And so what I have to normally do is I have to talk myself into it, and I have to say, I want this best for this person. I don't think I'm better than them. I'm not patronizing them. And here's, by the way, how you know you're ready to talk to somebody you're not looking forward to. If you're like, I can't wait to tell her, it's like, calm down. 
You are not ready. You are not ready. You know, some wives, when he gets home, I'm going to just give it to him. It's like, mm. And then there's timing, there's tone, there's tact. Tact is, or, or I, I think I, I was really telling you more tact with timing. Uh, there's, uh, tact is more how you go about doing it. It's, uh, you know, often it's helpful to ask a question. My favorite question to ask when trying to have peace with somebody is help me understand. But, but I have to really want to understand. This can't be help me understand, but that's a clever way for me to catch you. It's help me understand why you've been late to every community group over the last six months. I really want to understand, and I know life's hard, and I know life's busy, and I'm not trying to embarrass you, and I pulled you aside to ask you this privately. But gentleness is also not being nice. See, that's the other extreme. So we, we know like gentleness isn't being domineering, okay? But gentleness is not being nice. Night is, okay, I've read the whole Bible. The word nice is not in it. Um, nice means to smile and not have a spine. Nice means to be passive and weak. The Bible gives us words like gentle and kind. Here's how you know that you're having a wrong understanding of gentleness, and this often happens a lot with women. They're like, I just, you know, I don't want to say anything. It's like, well, if you're becoming resentful and bitter, and you're starting to have a fantasy life of exactly what you would say, and you're starting having this fantasy life of where you have these arguments and you win, you're, you realize there's something I haven't said that I need to say. What I've seen is in a lot of marriages, one of the spouses, normally the husband, is more domineering. And the wife normally has a wrong idea of what gentleness is. And so she's quiet and puts up with a lot, is, is, is passive aggressive and is resentful. We have to be humble. We have to be gentle. We have to be patient. What is that about? Some of you go, I can't wait to have patience. Some of you will get that on the way home. Okay, here you go. Um, <coughs> patience basically says this. Every good thing in life takes time. You have to really believe that. And you have to go, you have to go with all these, you have to go, God was this with me. God, Jesus is gentle and lowly with me. That's how my Savior is. And you have to go, wait a second, God was so patient with me. When you look back on your life, and I think most of us can do this, we can look back on our life and go, I cannot believe that for years and years I struggled with that besetting sin. In fact, I can't believe that I still struggle with it. In fact, I can't believe that all I've done is trade bigger sins for littler sins that are easier to hide. If you've ever tried to make genuine progress in your own life, it will lead you to being patient with other people. If you ever try to lose 10 or 15 pounds, you will be patient with every person trying to lose weight. If you've ever had a season, whether it was a few weeks, a few months, or a few years, where your marriage was like a four out of 10 and you were trying, but it wasn't working, you'll be very patient with people. And by the way, this is advice I got from a pastor years ago, and you will never regret going too slow with someone. Unless someone's, to clarify that, unless somebody's in danger, obviously. But when you're dealing with somebody, you'll never regret taking your time and going slow. Because all good things in life take time. Which leads to the fourth thing. So we've got to be humble, and we've got to be gentle, and we've got to be patient. These are not the virtues we normally think of. These are the softer virtues of the Christian life. And we've got to bear with one another. Now, that's different than bearing each other's burdens. That's also a biblical command. That's one of the one another's, right? Like, I bear your burdens, and you bear my burdens. But this says that we actually have to bear with one another. Here's what this means. I've got to put up with you. And you've got to put up with me. And I don't know who has the harder job, okay? 
Bearing with one another is an interesting idea because we're never told to bear with sin. Here's what you do. You, this is a helpful principle, and th- this, this, I think, really does work in marriages, um, but it will lead to a lot of conversations, which is in marriages, you're, su- you're supposed to forgive sin and forbear strangeness. I'm a fairly strange person, okay? <laughs> Amen. I, I mean, I really am. Uh, you know, for, so my wife, pray for her, has had to put up with all of my strangeness for 13 years. I mean, it, w- it would be, you know, so most recently, I mean, I've struggled with this for years. I talk super loud all the time everywhere. <laughs> and my wife will look at me and she'll go, what would be the nicest way to tell you you're yelling right now? <laughs> now, if, if I was trying to yell and be loud to annoy her and I was just trying to be rude and arrogant, then that would be a sin. If it's something that I'm not aware that I'm doing, it's not against the scriptures, but it's just annoying and awkward. <laughs> and here's the, here's the problem in marriage. You, you, sometimes you wrestle because you don't know, is this sin or is this strangeness? And is this something that needs to be forgiven or something that needs to be, we need to forbear? So here's what he's saying, guys. The reason that we're not as united and unified is first and foremost because we're not godly. But the second is that we're not gifted. We're not embracing the gifts God's given us. Let's look at this really quickly. Verse four, he says this. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. And so he's basically saying, guys, God is unified. It's time to get unified. It's time to start thinking about the oneness of God and how God's three persons, but you know, he's different roles, different responsibilities, but they're united in their mission. And he says this, so look at this, verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us. So this is really interesting. So he says, hey guys, this is what happened to all of us. One hope, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And then he goes, hold on, hold on. But let's stop talking about all of us for a second. To each one of us was given grace. Okay, well, what kind of grace? Look here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So the grace of God comes to us and it comes to us personally. Okay, well, what kind of grace? Look here. Therefore, it says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He's quoting Psalm 68. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Um, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Okay, now that's a confusing passage, right? You might go, well, what does it mean? And and, and basically Christians have, we have 2,000 years of Christians talking about this. It it means one of three things. It either, the descending and ascending, real quickly, okay? It, It either means his incarnation when he, when God became a man, and then when he went back up to heaven, that's one idea. The other idea means that, that somehow after the cross, he went to hell and, and then went to heaven. And the other idea is that somehow at Pentecost, uh, this is kind of more metaphorically speaking, he came down and he gave gifts at Pentecost and then he went back up to heaven through the Holy Spirit. It, it doesn't matter which one of those three it is because the same principle is true. Here's what he's saying. He's using this Roman warfare analogy that's out of Psalm 68, where he said back then, like a king would go to an area and he would take over, you know, he'd go to war against a, a, a village or a nation or a town or a city. And that town and city often had captives. We would call them today prisoners of warfare. And he would go and he would, he would rescue the town and he would free the captives. And then he would give the gifts, the spoils from that war back to the captives. And so what he's basically saying is, here's the big idea. Christ set you free. And when he set you free, he gave you gifts. 
Now it's like, is, is this spiritual gifts? Yes, okay. And by the way, there are five spiritual gifts list in the, in the New Testament. They're all different. None of them are extensive. None of them are exhaustive. We all get, kind of get a different, uh, different gift set, but this is what I want you to look at. Look, look this, is what's, this is what we're going to spend the rest of our time. Look at, look at the gifts he says. Here's the gifts. This is right. You got to read the Bible just in order. So, okay, he gives gifts. Well, what are the gifts? Here they are. And he gave, here's the gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. This is what we're going to talk about for the rest of the time, and I'm really excited. This is what is referred to as apest, okay? Can you say apest? Apest. I know we don't do back and forth very much here, but here we go. Apest, okay, apest. Now, now how did, Kyle, how did you get that? Well, it's just apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, okay? Apest. How do we think about how the local church should function? There are many different models people will give. You know, and, and, and these are biblical. People say, well, there's elders and there's deacons and then there's the members of the church and great. I want to talk for a while, for the rest of the time we've got today, about this idea of apest. Because I think that the church will only be unified, will only get along and grow up, okay, if this five-fold ministry is functioning in the church. Now, look, when you read apest, okay, here's what you think. You tend to think offices, right? And that's fine. We'll talk about that for a minute. So like you think like, weren't these biblical offices? Like, okay, the apostle Paul, yes, but the word apostle means one who's sent. Yes, there were 12 unique apostles, that was an office. Well, what about prophets? Isn't that an office? Well, yes. Moses was a prophet and Elijah and Elisha were prophets and Daniel writes his prophecy and the New Testament starts out with that great prophet, John the Baptist. You might say, well, isn't evangelist like an office and isn't that like a certain, oh yeah, there was Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch and he was kind of this evangelist and... Shepherds, is that an office? And teach, you know, you can go through this. And, and I would say it's an office in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But today, what he's saying is this is types of people God gives to churches. I would say in the Old Testament and New Testament, they are offices. Today, they're orientations. I know I'm taking a word that the culture uses to talk about sexuality. But what, what I mean by that is it's a way that you see and understand the world. And we need, I want each of us to hear this. I mean, I'm talking to all of you. I need you to find out hopefully right now as I'm speaking, which one of these are you? Sometimes you're a little bit of a mixture. And how can you use your gift orientation to serve the church and serve the city and serve your family, right? Because what's happened in most churches is what they call the exile of the ape. There are no apostles, there are no prophets, and there are no evangelists. The church is... <laughs> That's hard to say, but... <laughs> and therefore it's stuck, Okay. Because think about it, like I, I'm not picking on churches. I love churches. I think it takes all types of churches to reach all types of people. But why is the average church in America, all, they're almost all the exact same, why? Because they're led by very nice shepherd teachers. I wanna talk to you about each of these. First, the apostle. The apostle, I wanna give you a, a thought for each of these. The apostle is the pioneer. Some of you are pioneers. You start businesses, you can start things. It's the pioneer, the apostle basically takes the church to new places to reach new people, to embrace new ideas. Apostles are very hard to keep in your church, right? They're a little grumpy and they're always like, well, why aren't we going there? And they're always like, guys, we, what are we doing? They're, they always want the bigger mission budget. We're only giving 11% away to missions. We should be giving 25% away. Guys, I know we went to Mumbai and London. It's not enough. There's more lost people. Do you know how many people don't have a Bible and no believer in their language? Here's what the apostle always thinks about. The apostle thinks about tomorrow. That's it. 
what's next, what's new, where are we going? I've met guys like this. I've met pastors like this who, are, who, who they function the apostle gifts. I know a guy. He plants a church, it gets to a couple hundred people, and he goes, I'm bored. Can we get a shepherd teacher to lead this thing? I got to go. I'm serious. The apostle focuses on tomorrow. Without the apostle, the church is stuck and it's stagnant. And you can thank the Lord because I've got a little bit of apostle in me, but Dave, our, one of our pastors, you guys know Pastor Dave, is an apostle. You can call him Apostle Dave from now on if you want to. <laughs> I mean, we're getting into this building, and you know what we're thinking already? What's next? Do you know William Wilberforce, the, who abolished slavery? Do you know what he said the night he abolished slavery? It took him decades. The night it was announced, he looked at his best friend and he said, What are we going to abolish next? <laughs> That's the apostle. Next, we need the prophet. The prophet. Thank God for the prophet. The prophet, if the apostle thinks about tomorrow, the prophet thinks about today. The prophet foretells and foretells. Now, nowadays, it's foretelling. In the Old Testament, New Testament, it was some fore, uh, foretelling. Hey, this is what's going to happen. The, we need the apostle, first of all, because the, po the apostle is that which confronts the church and confronts the culture. And man, do we need that. The, the, the prophet's the one who gets up and goes, guys, what the heck are they doing with Pride Month? Jesus gets a day at Christmas, pride gets a month. What did we do? We took a seven deadly sin and we celebrated it. What's going on? And, and, it, and it comes to the church and just, you know, says, what are, you, what are you doing with this casual stuff that you guys are doing? And why are you, life is not about the academics and activities of your kids. Come on. But then the prophet also, this is, hear me, because I have some of this in me. Um, the, the prophet is also, Sometimes in the Old Testament, the only person who is hopeful. It's like during COVID, it's like, stop it. Stop whining about everything. Stop being so isolated. Stop thinking the world has, has ended. We're going to get through this. Yeah. That's what the prophet did during COVID. The prophet thinks about today. The prophet analyzes scripture and culture and says, what's going on? The prophet challenges the apostle. The apostle says, we gotta go, we gotta go to this new place. And the prophet says, are you sure it's where God wants us to go? <laughs> Without the prophet, the church becomes carnal. And the church has nothing to say to the culture. Then you gotta have the evangelist. The evangelist is the recruiter. Some of you are the recruiter. The evangelist feels more comfortable with non-Christians than he does or she does with Christians. They're always inviting people. So here's, here's how you think about it. If the apostle thinks about tomorrow, and the prophet thinks about today, guess what the evangelist thinks about? Forever. You, you meet these evangelists, like, guys, heaven and hell is just like, it's right there, and anyone could die at any moment. And <sighs> Here's what the, if the apostle says, we gotta go to new places, and then the prophet says, are we gonna, are, are, is that where God wants us to go? The evangelist goes, are we actually gonna reach new people? The evangelist comes to a church and goes, I don't care how big your church is, I don't care how fast growing it is. Is it growing by transfer growth? Are people transferring from other cities? Are people transferring from other churches? Or are people transferring from the kingdom of darkness? The without the evangelists, we have no baptisms. Guys, American evangelicalism struggles to reach anybody who doesn't have their last name. We're doing an okay job as American evangelicals trying to reach our kids. We're doing an okay job. We are doing a horrible job at reaching anyone who does not have our last name. 
Shepherds. The shepherd, is, the shepherd is the defender and the caregiver. And like I told you, if the, if the apostle's looking at tomorrow and the prophet's looking at today and the evangelist is looking at forever, you know what the uh, shepherd looks at? The past. You ever meet, we got a lot of shepherds on our staff. A lot of our elders, that's, that would be their gift orientation. Um, the shepherd always wants to talk to you about your past. So you come in, they say, well, tell me, man, how long have you been struggling with it? Was it, does this go back to your parents? You know, you don't like your job. How long have you not liked your job? Tell me the story. Tell me, I want to know, the, tell me about your kids. What's going on with them? How long has this been going on? They're, they're shepherding. Here's why this is so important. If you just have the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist, you feel like you're in the military. They're always coming, and we need those voices. They're like, dude, why aren't you going somewhere else and doing something else? Like, I'm trying. And the prophet's confronting you. Dude, you're weak and you're passive. Step up. It's like, oh, I'm trying. And the evangelist is like, dude, could you share the gospel with like one person this year? And then the, but we all need the shepherd. The shepherd, the shepherd kind of comes to us. We have a couple of these on our staff. I mean, Pastor Jordan, we just hired him as our, as our pastor of care. He's, he's the guy who comes around and goes, guys, look, there's like 10 marriages in our church that are like not doing well. Like not, not doing well. And it's like, we don't, yeah, we need to plant more churches and yeah, we need to go, but guys, we've got to put together a system to care for the health and the people that God's already bringing around. We need to take care of the fruit that God's giving us. And we say, oh, thank you. Good reminder. <laughs> and then there's the teacher. If the apostle looks at tomorrow and the prophet looks at today and the evangelist looks at the forever and the shepherd looks at the past, the teacher just looks at the Bible. <laughs> the teacher just looks at the redemptive history. That's what we call it. From Genesis to Revelation, the teacher says, guys, we gotta, we gotta talk about these things. I, the, the teacher says, I, I want to systematically walk you through the Bible and I wanna take complex things and I want to make them simple. And without the teacher, the church is shallow. And so I need you to think about who are you? You, you might have multiple of those. Guys, the church is weaker if all of those aren't present. I will tell you the healthiest community group is probably gonna be a community group where those five things are present. Sometimes that's why it takes 15 or 20 people in a group for it to really, it's like, okay, we need the apostle who's gonna ask us where we're going next and we need the shepherd because our lives are gonna fall apart and we need the teacher because we wanna know the Bible better and we need the evangelist because can we reach somebody for Jesus this year? We need the prophet because... Uh, <sighs> I'm, will, I'm often willing to compromise, and we need that one guy or gal in the, in, in the group that's going to call us out on that. We just need, even though we hate it sometimes, we need all that. Here's why. Look what happens. If you have this, this is what you get. Here's what Paul's telling us. I mean, I told you, this is the main message. Here's what he's saying. If you, if you will be godly, and if you will be gifted, and the gifts are exactly what they are. They're gifts. But if you will embrace your gift, and you will be godly, guess what, you, guess what happens? Everybody gets to grow up. That's what he says. Look, I don't know how else to explain this passage. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints... That, you know what that means? I wish I had more time. This really should be two sermons. Here's what this means. That means to fix what is broken. It's powerful. It means to put back in place that which is out of joint, which is most of our lives. And it takes all five of these type of people to put it back in place. Here's what it says. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain the unity of the faith. There's unity again of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Here's what he's saying. When all these gifts are functioning, we will grow up. Do you know we need to grow up? We live in a culture right now where there is a real lack of grown-ups. Do you know the number one word 
that was created in 2016 was the word adulting. It was, it was, it was usually by these young people in their 20s and 30s, and they were, it, it went viral through hashtag tweets. And it would be something like this. Ah, oh, paid my first mortgage payment. Hashtag adulting. <laughs> did, you know, did laundry on a Saturday. Hashtag adulting. <laughs> and you, it's, it's funny, but it's like, oh, adulting is like a persona you put on for a few minutes to do something before you take it off to go be consumeristic and selfish again. To grow up, here's what, here's what growing up means. When you grow up, there's a transition from toys to tools. This, this, is, this is what growing up is. You know you're, and you'll meet a 40-year-old guy who's still a boy, and his whole life is about tools, or to toys, not tools. You know you grow up when you go from me to we. You know you grow up when you go from rights to responsibilities. You know you grow up when you go from now to later. The definition of a two-year-old is about themselves, everything they want is now, and all they want is toys. And that's great if you're two, but not if you're 22. And so he's saying, guys, we have to grow up and we need this. And look, look at the final word he says. Here's how we grow up. One last time he says it, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that, and then it kind of takes over, so that it builds itself up in love. Here's the final thing. You gotta be able to speak the truth in love. I, I don't have time to get into this, but it's okay because he expands on this and I'm gonna talk about this all next week about the power of words and all of this, okay? But here's what I want you to know. We need the full apest talking to the full apest. <laughs> In other words, here's what happens. Okay, so say a marriage is falling apart. Every once in a while, it needs, the, it needs the apostle. You know, it needs the apostle to come over and go, dude, your marriage cannot stay in the same place. But then it also needs the shepherd. Man, let's meet. Can you meet for the next six weeks? I'd love to have you over. You, you know, my wife and I, we've had the same problem. You get over our house and we're gonna do this. It needs the teacher. Hey, hold on, man. Maybe there's like five things from the Bible about marriage you don't know. See, when you're in trouble, you need to talk to somebody different than you, right? You don't need to, like, if you're an apostle, you don't need to go to some other apostle. Like, yeah, just keep working harder. <laughs> a lot of times you, you, you need to go over to the shepherd and go, dude, calm down, man. Like, you're going new places, but your family needs you. But then there's a whole other type of person that's like, dude, you're lazy, and this whole work-life balance for you is a joke. It's a lot of life and not a lot of work. We need the whole apest, and here's why. Because when you, when we're all functioning, if you'll embrace it, your A, your P, your E, your S, your T, when the church is acting like that, we can more clearly see Christ. Because he, more than anybody else, embodied all five of those. He was the great apostle. You want to know, he was the apostle who looked at his father and looked at the Holy Spirit and said, guys, I'll be back. I got to go. I got to go to a new place, and I got to reach some new people. And he was the prophet who came down and says, I'm not just going to give you the word of God. I'm going to be the word of God. And I'm, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and he explained and expounded the whole Old Testament and showed us how it pointed to himself. He's the great evangelist who says early on, come and see. He's the evangelist who, when he's busy and he's tired, finds time to do evangelism to a woman at the well. He's the great shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. 
And he's the great teacher that to this day, the most famous message and sermon ever preached is still his Sermon on the Mount. So guys, I want to just take a moment, bow your heads, close your eyes with me for just a second. I want to give us a chance to just say, where do you got to be more godly? Where do you, you got to, you know, it says, speak the truth in love. You know who you need to have a hard conversation with? Yourself. <laughs> not, not your spouse, not your kids, yourself. You need to have an honest, hard conversation with yourself. And you got to say, could you, could you grow in one of those areas? Could you say, Jesus, help me see that you're humble, so I'll be humble. Help me see you're gentle, so I'll be gentle. If we're going to get along and grow up, we need to be godly and gifted. Would you embrace your gifts? We need you, you to use your gifts. Would you say, Lord, show me. Use my spouse, use my kids, use my friends, use my community group. Show me what my gifts are. Because it's going to take the diversity of gifts for the maturity of the church. Lord, would you let our church be a church that is not a high control environment, that's, that's uniformity, but is a, an environment of grace and peace and spirit-led unity in the midst of diversity where different types of people and gift sets are unleashed to reach and disciple more people and to grow the church. That's the great vision. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.